if you got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it. If you don't have one, there should be one in the pew rack around you there somewhere, a black one. And why don't you go ahead and find Luke chapter 7 with me, Luke chapter 7. Uh, if you were with us last week, you were aware that we finished Jesus' Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6 is a really pivotal teaching by Jesus as he begins to train his disciples for life in a sinful world. And we saw Jesus move through this training curriculum as he talked about the perspective that we ought to have in the seasons of our life. He talked about uh, how we are to respond when people persecute, oppress, and revile us for preaching in Jesus' name for taking a stand for the Son of Man. And then finally, last week, we were left with these uh, litany of images that Jesus gave to us. We, we closed the sermon looking at uh, two men with two houses built on two different foundations. And Jesus says one of them can withstand the storms and the other one has a fall that is great. Well, that's how uh, Jesus closes the sermon. And as he walks away from this sermon, as we've heard, uh, Jesus is now going to get back into ministry. He's going to return to a place called Capernaum that we haven't seen since Luke chapter 4. Capernaum was really a place that uh, began Jesus' ministry because it, it caused the people in Nazareth to turn away from him and to say, do the miracles that you've done in Capernaum here in your hometown. And it caused this rift or division between Jesus and the people who knew him best, the people who he had grown up with. Well, we're going to be seeing here something in Luke chapter 7 that I think is incredibly important. Both Matthew and Luke have this story on the other side of Jesus' preaching ministry. And right from the beginning, let me tell you, I love this text. This is an incredible text. It is incredibly important. Now, if we closed last week uh, listening to Jesus say, why do you call me Lord, Lord? and not do what I say. I will show you uh, who he is like, who takes my word and obeys it. And we have these two pictures of these two houses. Well, you may walk out last week and go, geez, I just need some, I need an illustrate. <clears throat> Excuse me. I need an illustration. I need a story. I need a picture of what it really looks like to take Jesus's word seriously. You ever wonder what that looks like? You ever wonder, what am I, do am I doing that right now? Am I taking Jesus' word seriously in my life? Am I really obeying what he says? Well, this text here in Luke 7 is incredibly important because what you're going to have in Luke chapter 7 are echoes of everything that Jesus has said in Luke chapter 6. Okay? You're going to have some people who come to Jesus. You're going to have some people who hear Jesus. You're going to have some people... Uh, what else do you have? Uh, you have some people who call him Lord, and we've seen that in this ministry so far. Uh, you're going to have somebody mention a house. You're going to have somebody mention building something. So as you read Luke chapter 7, it's really helpful for you to read Luke 6 and 7 together. I can't preach them together because we have three-hour sermons, and nobody comes to your church when you do that. Uh, but as we pick up, I want you to get the sense of what Jesus has just finished saying in Luke chapter 6. I want you to have the images of the house and the building and people saying, Lord, Lord, and people coming to him and people hearing his word and wondering, what is this connection between hearing and doing? And that's what you're going to have in this story of the centurion and his servant. All right, you with me? You got that? Let's pray real quick and we'll jump into this text here together. Father, for these few minutes as we look into your word, would we um, see some things about you that perhaps we haven't considered before? 
Would you, as a result of this text, disturb the idols of our heart, disturb the confidence that we so easily put into everything else but you and your word? Would you shape us and challenge us? Would you cause us to repent and to come to you with empty hands, trusting alone in who you are and what you do and what you say? Father, bless us as we look into your word here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Luke chapter 7. Y'all there? You good? Luke chapter 7, verse 1. Verse 1 is really a transition verse. It hooks together everything that you've seen in Luke 6, and the real story in Luke chapter 7 doesn't start until verse 2. But this is really the intro to everything that you're going to see in Luke chapter 7. Look at what verse 1 says. After he had finished all his sayings. Now, when you read through the book of Luke, that word finished is not just Jesus got to the end and closed the book. The word finished is a word that means fulfilled. You've seen it before in the book of Luke when the angel Gabriel says, Zechariah, you will be mute until my words are fulfilled. You'll hear it in the words of Jesus when he's in his hometown of Nazareth back in Luke chapter 4 when he said this word, this quote from Isaiah has been fulfilled in your presence. So it's a word that doesn't just mean uh, finished, it means that something of great importance has just been completed in the ministry of Jesus Christ. It's a word that is often attributed to God and to the Old Testament scriptures. So when Luke begins this part of his story and begins to introduce you to the characters that we're about to see, it's as if he begins reminding you that Jesus is God and what he says is incredibly important. You with me? So that's how he starts. After Jesus has fulfilled this part of his ministry of preaching the gospel, preaching this new kingdom mentality and perspective on life, you see how he preaches it. He preaches it in the hearing of the people, which reminds us of what he has just said. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Everyone who comes to me and hears me and obeys my word, he's the one who builds a strong house. So we're waiting in this transition verse to see everybody's heard what Jesus said. Who's going to put it into practice? So you have that question in the back of your mind. Who is it that's going to actually put into practice what we see here in Jesus' sermon? Now Jesus enters back into Capernaum, which we haven't seen for a couple chapters. The last time we saw Capernaum was Jesus in the synagogue casting out of demons. So we're prepared, again, for Jesus to enter into Capernaum onto the ministry scene with everything that he's just said to these people following behind them. And we're waiting to see what does it look like to put Jesus' words into action. Now, we finished last week talking about the importance of obedience. You remember that? Were you here? You remember? Okay. Both of you were here. That's great. We have 498 new people in the room. Last week, we talked about obedience. We talked about what it means to listen to his word, to come to him, and to do what Jesus says. Now, how is it that we're going to do that? Because when Jesus closes the sermon with such a visceral illustration of destroyed houses and houses that make it through the hurricane, we have to ask ourselves a little bit of a deeper question. What really does it mean to obey what Jesus says? Is Jesus after merely mechanical, wooden obedience? Is that the heartbeat of our relationship with Jesus? Say no. No, no it's not. 
Because our obedience is always a reflection of what is going on on the inside of who we are. Our obedience is always a measure of our deepest and most sincere heart level commitments. Our obedience always flows from what we trust and what we hope in. So you may think that, well, Steve, when we talk about obedience and faith, these kind of spiritually minded terms, they're for church folk. They're for people with a religious background. They're for people who have grown up in the church. They've gone to VBS. Steve, I, I, don't, I don't have a lot of that background. I didn't come from that kind of family. I haven't had a lot of that experience recently. And what I would say to you is that if you consider how you're living your life right now, the decisions you are making, the morality uh, the, the functional morality that you bring to this season of life always flows from what you trust. See, the foundational commitments of our life and the behaviors that flow from that always demonstrate that we are putting our faith in something. You may put your faith in your relative financial success at this time. You may put your faith uh, in your degrees. You may put your faith in your trust, not in your degrees. Maybe it's street smarts for you. You may put your faith and trust in the strength of your family, the strength of your relationships, your ability to get by on your hard work. Whatever it is, we all have a tendency to put our faith and trust in something. To build our lives on some foundation that we sincerely believe will protect us, will comfort us, will give us true security. And when we do that, one of God's graces to us is making those places, those foundational decisions that we make in our life, God's grace to us is disturbing those foundations. Do you know that? That is a key part of your sanctification journey with Jesus. Because Jesus is not willing for you to build your life on anything other than him. So with that perspective in mind, let's get introduced to the characters of this story in Luke chapter 7. Verse 2. Now, a centurion had a servant. Let me explain to you what a centurion is. You might go, hey, he manages 100 people. That's well and good, which is true. They're, they're kind of a mid-level military leader in the Roman army. They had... The Roman army would be broken up in terms of tiers, and you would have someone called a decurion who would be over 10, you'd have the centurion who was over 100, and then you'd have someone called a chiliarch who would be over 1,000. So the Roman military system operated tens, hundreds, thousands. This guy lives in the world of, I think you could call middle management. They were typically very well-off individuals. And by this point in their career, the Romans would look for individuals who had more than just battle-hardened uh, street smarts. They would look for people, especially within their ranks, who would need to rise. And if they were to rise, they had to have a different skill set. They couldn't just shoot a gun and kill people. They couldn't just use a sword and be effective on the battlefield. They had to move into areas of diplomacy and administration because they were going to be called to manage. Now, Romans' occupation at this point was one of the largest geographical occupations of the time, of the amount of land that 
they oversaw. And the Romans synthesized people into their culture and they synthesized them under the military might and rule of Rome. So that what was called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, covered their entire kingdom, which means you had a lot of Roman soldiers who would operate as centurions in places and cities where they were meant not to exert martial law over people, but they were called to keep the peace. They were men in positions of influence uh, that used their diplomacy and their administrative skills to get along with the individuals or the, I'm sorry, the kind of the, the groups of people who were under Roman rule. So this centurion uh, didn't have a small part to play when it came to being uh, sent out into the Israel and Judah population. He was a significant figure. He would have lots of key diplomatic, political, social, religious relationships that he would have to manage. So because his success within the Roman military system depended on his ability to get along with people, to exercise Roman rule, not just by force, but through diplomacy, you looked for men of high character. You looked for men who didn't just, you know, their only tool in their tool belt was a hammer and every problem they saw, they would hit it like a nail. They had a sensitivity to them. They had some cultural awareness when this military occupancy happened with the people that they were over. So this was an individual who would exercise his leadership in, like I said, diplomatic, uh, philanthropic, uh, administrative kinds of ways. And this individual, this centurion, has a problem. He's got a significant problem. He's got a servant that's near to death. The Greek word is uh, an adverb that means certainly. Almost in all scenarios, it means certainly, which means this servant's future is sealed. This servant has no other hope. This servant has no other direction. Everybody expects this servant to die. And you would think that Luke would give us more insight into what's happening because he's a doctor, but he doesn't. In fact, we get more information in the story of Luke. I'm sorry, in the story of Matthew. When Matthew records this, he said the servant is at home suffering terribly and he's paralyzed. So this servant is at the end of his life. Everybody is certain that he would die. And this centurion highly values him. Probably better if you were to translate that word. That word either means he's valued as an asset or he's esteemed as a friend. And I'll show you later on how the, the centurion refers to him, but this centurion esteems, highly esteems, highly values this servant. Now, you've got the, you've got the setting here. You've got the characters. Now, look with me at verse 3. When the centurion heard about Jesus. He sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servants. Now at this point, the, Jesus has had very limited interaction with Gentiles in the book of Luke. Do you know that? He's had some encounters with the religious leaders who oppose him. He's had some encounters with a mass of people and the crowds who follow him, his disciples who he's chosen. But up to this point, we haven't had a really significant encounter with someone like a centurion. A centurion was maybe a Roman, but he was definitely a Gentile. He definitely had no Jewish background. He definitely had no familiarity with the law or the background that a Jew might have growing up knowing the Old Testament and all of the Old Covenant promises. He would have none of that awareness. So the centurion does something that I think is 
pretty easy to understand. Any of us who are in positions of low influence, even in our own society, recognize the power of having somebody who has influence step into uh, going on my behalf, right? If you don't know how to work on your car, who do you want to talk to? I want to talk to somebody who knows how to work on cars and get this car thing taken care of. If you order a brand new refrigerator from Home Depot and within four days it doesn't work, you know who you want to talk to? You want to talk to Home Depot. Did you know that Home Depot won't talk to you? <laughs> Anybody work for Home Depot? Can you fix that for me, please? Real life example in the Heron house right now. What was I talking about? Something real good. It just comes out of me. My heart issues come out of me, just in the pulpit. So he doesn't have any, he doesn't have any cred, right? He doesn't have any credibility in the world of Jewish religious teachers who also happen to cast out demons and heal people. But he's a leader in the, in the community. He's a leader in the society. And he has some pull. He has some relational credibility with the Jewish leaders. So he asks the Jewish leaders, would you go on my behalf to talk to Jesus? You're Jewish. You're religious. This guy seems like he's a religious teacher at this time. Maybe you can go and speak on my behalf for me. You know, one of the key themes that's in the book of Luke, Luke is the gospel for the Gentiles. It's for the outsiders. And that's one of the key things that Luke works on to let you know that those who are outside the historical, religious, spiritual community in Jesus are welcomed in. Haven't we seen that with the leper? Remember that with the leper? The leper who was outside of all of the relational credibility that he had when Jesus came on the scene and Jesus was willing to heal him and Jesus was willing to bring him in that he was now brought into life again. Well, the picture that you have here when Jesus relates to a centurion who is certainly a Gentile is that Jesus is crossing the socio-political relational barriers that exist in every society. So when you become a part of following Jesus, there is no more insider-outsider distinction. We want everybody to know Jesus. We want, we want to leverage all of our relational influence to connect people to the life and forgiveness and redemption that's available in Jesus. So not only does Luke give us a picture of the Gentile now having access to come into the presence of Jesus, but Luke in this passage also reveals something for us that we all have a tendency to relate to God a certain way. No matter what your background is, no matter what kind of religious upbringing you have, what I want you to tune into here in this text and for you to see is how we all have a default way that we see God. No matter who you are, you all, all of us, no matter what your family background is, we all come to God a certain way. Now watch what these religious leaders do. Because they show us how everywhere works. Have you ever had to ask for a letter of reference from somebody? And you, you got to tell them, hey, tell them ruggedly handsome, uh, good hair. I can, um, I, can, I can work with Word and Excel. I can, I can make a PDF. Lots of stuff. Just tell them every, tell them all the good stuff. You know what it means to have to have no credibility and ask somebody to validate you, right? 
We've all been in that situation. If you want a job, if you want a promotion, you want references, you want all that stuff, you need somebody on the outside to validate who you are. And here's the centurion who doesn't have any cred. He's got no ability to step into this situation to say, I've got something of great and pressing and important need in my life and heart, and I need Jesus. Would you go on my behalf to Jesus? So watch what the leaders say. Look at verse 4. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly. It's a word that means repetitively. It's in an ongoing. They're saying, please, Jesus, this guy, Jesus, pay attention. Here's a problem. Jesus, come on, Jesus, this guy's important. You need to take care of this guy and what's happening in his life. They say this, he's worthy to have you do this for him. Jesus, yeah, he's an, he's an outsider. Yeah, he's a part of the occupying force that now has our people under their thumb. Um, we're not going to appeal so much even to our religious background as Jewish leaders. We're going to leverage the conversational opportunity we have with you, but we're going to tell you that this guy's worth helping. This guy may not be one of us. He may not be an ethnic Jew, but this is a guy, Jesus, that you should help. This is a guy who is an upstanding gentleman. He is worthy. You know where we get the word worthy? It's translated worthy, but in the Greek, it's the word that we get the term axis from. Do you know that? You know what an axis is? An axis operates scales. So the idea behind worthy is that your life measures up. It balances out. Well, why does it balance out? Look at what the Jewish leaders say. Look at verse 5. For he loves our nation. This is an individual who's a centurion who has a position of leadership to systematically oppress the Jews who are under Roman rule at this time and the Jewish leaders vouch for him. Isn't that incredible? They say he loves us. He could abuse us. He could critique us. He could leverage his position to take from us, but this is an upstanding man who loves us. He cares about us as a people. Look at what else he says. And he is the one who built us our synagogue. He is a philanthropist. He has invested, imagine, you give your money to a lot of stuff, right? You give your money to World Vision, you give your money to missionaries. Imagine giving your money to build the temple of the Jews. You couldn't get a better financial contribution at the end of the year on your taxes for the Jews to say, he helped us maintain God's house of worship. So they go, of course he's worthy. He loves us and he gives financially to make sure that our synagogue, our place of worship, the place where we go and worship God is secure and built up. Now up to this point, this is, a pretty good, this is a pretty good guy, isn't it? We got a pretty, he's got a pretty, a pretty impressive resume. He's got a pretty good background. So the scene is set up for, for us to ask a question like, how do we come to Jesus? How do you, I mean honestly, how do you come to Jesus? Do you come to Jesus saying, well, Jesus, I've worked hard. It's been six weeks and I haven't done that thing that I'm really addicted to and I love doing. I know you don't like, but I haven't done it in a long time. Jesus, I've been working hard at work. Jesus, I've been doing a lot of good things. Jesus, I went to church twice in the last month. 
Jesus, I was a part of that thing where I could serve. Jesus, I gave some money to that thing that cost me a little bit, and I, I invested in something I thought was definitely worthwhile. Are, 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 is Jesus like Santa? Is that our, our default perspective in our heart, that God doesn't welcome people unless they have a resume? Unless they've done some things, unless they've been obedient, unless they've worked really hard, unless they're type A, unless they've been successful, unless they've, whatever it is, fill in the blank. Is that default, does that default perspective live in your heart? Because it lives in mine. But I can't come to Jesus unless I get my life together. I can't ask Jesus for help in something of incredible importance to me unless I have a relative string of wins. And you might think that. Because look at how verse 6 starts. That Jesus went with them. It worked. The resume tactic worked. The having someone go on my behalf worked. Yeah, I am now going to get this situation in my life resolved. Let me ask you a question before we go on. Is there a difference between your public reputation and what really lives in your heart. See, you know some things about you that you wouldn't want on a resume, amen? No, that hits too close to home? Okay. You know some things about you that if they were to call in the references of people who knew you well and have known you since when, they can tell some stories that don't align with the reputation that you have in the eyes of others right now. So here comes Jesus. He says, all right, I'm coming. And while he's on the way, look at how verse 6 continues. When he was not far from the house, he's gotten off at your exit. He's pulled into your neighborhood. He's on your street. When he was not far from the house, the centurion, the centurion doesn't send more religious leaders Isn't that interesting? He sends friends, which I don't think it's a big jump to say that these friends probably know the centurion. These friends probably have a front row seat to who the centurion is and what he, how he operates in his day-to-day world. And these friends come with something of a different message. These friends come with a quote that comes directly from the centurion. In fact, what's amazing about this entire passage is that Jesus and the centurion never are face to face. Do you know that? The entire story, the whole tension of what Luke categorizes for us here is all in the midst of letters and messages being sent and received. That's important. Keep thinking about that. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, well, let's see what the friends say. Lord, are you seeing that, hey, they come, they heard about Jesus, they call him Lord. You see all these themes? You see all these words that are starting to pinging your your memory from what Jesus has just said in Luke chapter 6? Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Well, that's interesting. We just had individuals who know the centurion who 
can speak to his public reputation. And now we have, from the mouth of the centurion himself, contradicting what is known about his public reputation. Well, that's weird, isn't it? And what's interesting is that the word for worthy, now our word for worthy is the same one that, it, that the elders use, right? He is worthy. This uh, word that the centurion uses in the mouth of his friends is a confession that he is not worthy. It's a little bit of a different word. The word actually means uh, to be sufficient, to be able it's not so much about the worth of the individual, it's about the ability of the individual. Now, let me give you, I'll illustrate it. Luke chapter 3. It's been used in the book of Luke this far, thus far in the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist says this over in Luke 3. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. I'm not able. I'm not sufficient. This task is beyond me. Paul uses it when he talks about his ministry over in 2 Corinthians 3. He says this, not that we are sufficient, there's that word, in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So the elders come to Jesus and they plead earnestly, they go, hey, look at his resume. Look at what he's done. Look at what he's accomplished. Look at what he's given. Look how much he cares about us. Look at the evidences that this is a distinguished, upstanding citizen. He is a man of valor in the position that he is called to. But now his friends arrive and his friends say that I am not sufficient. I have inability. I, my reputation and my accomplishments may say one thing, but in reality, when I consider who I am, I am insufficient. I am inadequate. You ever have somebody arrive at your house unannounced? Why does that terrify you? Do you know why? Because all of a sudden something about you is going to be revealed that you don't want revealed. All of a sudden they're going to find out that the laundry is everywhere and that the things are not cleaned up and the house is a disaster and can somebody please pick up the cheese on the floor? And it's as if this centurion is sitting there going like, I wonder if the elders made it. I wonder if they're asking. I wonder if they're saying the right things. I wonder if they've listed my accomplishment. Then as Jesus gets closer and closer and closer, this centurion gets more and more pressure on his chest. And he has to get his friends together and say, I'm not sufficient. I'm not able. I, I don't have anything to offer this man who's about to come into my house and address the greatest need of my life right now. Verse 7, therefore, because I'm insufficient, therefore, because I have no ability, therefore, because I am not who people say that I am on the outside, I did not presume to come to you. You know what that word is, the presume? It is the word that the elders use. And in this context, it's translated as presumptuous. It would be presumptuous of me to say that I am worthy for you to be in my house. I don't deserve you to come. Now, I want to show you something here. This text moves on the reality of Jesus' arrival, right? 
we've got a problem. Centurion's got a problem. He's got a servant, highly esteemed, close to death, about to death. Definitely he's going to die. And we need Jesus to arrive on the scene to fix this problem, right? Now, the first step we get is we send an emissary. We send the Jews. And the Jews say, he's worthy. Come on. And Jesus says, okay, I'm coming. Now, though, when the centurion confesses his inadequacy, his inability, he says something different. Do you see how it changes? He doesn't, he doesn't say, I didn't presume for you to come. He says, I did not presume to come to you. Well, that's different. Now it's Jesus coming here. Now the centurion recognizes his inadequacy and his inability to relate to Jesus and said, I'm not even going to make the move to you. So as Luke has set up the story for us, we have a problem that needs to be handled. It can only be handled by Jesus, but now we have a major issue because Jesus isn't coming. He was on his way. The centurion said, no, you're not going to come here. I'm not going to come there. Therefore, what's the third option in the relationship? The third option in the relationship is that Jesus doesn't come. He will not be in person with the centurion to address his greatest need. Now, why does that matter? Why is it that Jesus' lack of visible presence is okay for the centurion. Why is that? Why is he okay with Jesus who was willing to come for him not to come? There must be more compelling, a more compelling reality for this centurion than the visible presence of Jesus. Do you know what it is? It's in the second part of the verse. But, say the word and let my servant be healed. You remember Mary and Martha when their brother Lazarus dies? The first thing Mary and Martha say when Jesus arrives four days late after he's dead and buried in the tomb is, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Remember that? Why is it then that this centurion is okay with Jesus not coming? It must be there's something more compelling to his heart than Jesus' visible presence. Let me tell you something, Christians. Apart from God rolling back the heavens like a scroll and appearing in the sky, you will spend the entirety of your Christian life absent a visible encounter with Jesus Christ. Do you know that? So this matters a lot for you in this room right now because... As far as I know, I've never seen Jesus. Peter says, though you do not see him now, you love him. And rejoice with joy inexpressible, obtaining the, obtaining the, uh, blah, I'll get it, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So what is so compelling to this centurion? What is so compelling to this centurion is the word of God. See, up to this point, the very first step in how we relate to God. See, a lot of us think we got to relate to God with all of our resume. The centurion throws that out the window and says, I'm going to relate to Jesus totally differently. I'm going to confess my total inability. I'm going to confess my total inadequacy to come to Jesus on my own merits. I'm going to say, Jesus, I'm not even worthy to have you come under my roof. I, I don't presume upon your willingness. I don't presume upon who you are. I am not sufficient to have you even come to my house. But Jesus, you do one thing. 
Jesus, you say the word and let my servant be healed. See, the centurion's confidence, this is important. Guys, this is so important in the day and time that we live right now, in a day and time where we want emotional, subjective validation in our lives. This centurion's life is resting upon the authority of the word of Christ on nothing else. I don't need to see him. I don't need to have confidence in my resume. There's nothing else I need except for his word to speak. I love this. Then he gives Jesus an illustration. You ever have somebody give Jesus an illustration? Jesus gives illustrations all the time. This man gives Jesus an illustration. Jesus, here's what I mean, in case you don't get, say the word. Well, how does he get here? How does a centurion get to this? He doesn't know anything about Jesus other than the things that he's heard. He doesn't have the Old Testament. He doesn't have the stories of Elisha and Elijah. He doesn't have the story of the Red Sea crossing. He doesn't have any Bible. He doesn't have anything other than, I heard there's a guy who heals people and casts out demons. Maybe he can address this issue in my life. Look at what he does. He reasons from the ground up. He reasons from his personal experience up. A lot of times people look at their personal experiences and they go, there's no way God could be, because look at this. But this man takes the look at this at my life and he goes, therefore God must be. Therefore Jesus must be. Therefore something must be true about God and who he is. Verse 8, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. How does the military work if not for effective, immediate obedience? Now, I don't know if it always works like that. Doug, does it work like that? More, Doug said more or less. Doug was in the military 20 years, so trust him. You can't have military work without obedience, without authority, without structures. And this man understands authority. Amen? Would a, would a centurion understand authority? Would he understand who's below him, who's above him, who he salutes, who he follows, who he has to obey? And he takes that experience in his world and he goes, I have soldiers and when I tell them to go, they go. And I have soldiers and I tell them to come, they come. And when I have a servant and I tell him to do something, he does it. I understand how authority works. Jesus, I believe that your authority is like my authority. I believe that your authority is greater than my authority. And Jesus I believe that sickness will obey you like soldiers and servants obey me. You think this guy takes his faith to work? Do you think he looks through the lens of faith and trust and the authority of Christ's word and what he, how he thinks about life? Verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. You know, people marvel at Jesus and his miracles all the time. There is only said oh, two places in all the Bible where Jesus is said to be amazed at something. One is the second time he arrives in his hometown. And it says he could not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. It's in Mark chapter 6. And he says he marvels at their unbelief. The people who have the most knowledge about who he is. The people who have known him since he was a boy. And he is so stunned 
at their lack of willingness to obey, their lack of willingness to believe. The other time Jesus is amazed is right here. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. What right does he have to come to Jesus? What historical awareness of Jesus and his place at this moment in human history where the God-man has arrived? What does he understand about Christ? How many verses has he memorized? How many times do you think he's been to synagogue? What do you think his religious background is? He's left with essentially functional folk theology about how his workplace works. And turning to the crowd that followed him. You see how the crowd disappeared? Where was the crowd in the beginning of this story? Back in verse 1. Where's the crowd now? They're back on the scene. Turning to the crowd that followed him. The crowd that was listening to the very word of God. The crowd that now is watching servants come and servants go. Bring messages about this man's worthiness. And bring messages about his inability and his insufficiency to have Jesus in his home. These people in the crowd hear Jesus say, I tell you not even in Israel have I found such what? Faith. Now, let's do a deep dive real quick. What is faith in this passage? Number one, it's total skepticism of my ability to bring anything to the table when it comes to Jesus. I have to confess my inadequacy, my insufficiency, my inability. I have to confess that apart from him, I can do nothing. That the problems in my life are too big for me. They're too big for my intellect. They're too big for my past recent history. They're too big for my wisdom. They're too big for my experience. They're too big. This centurion stands in front of this slave that he loves and that he cares about who's right on the doorstep of death. And he has to say, there's nothing that I can do. But number two, I shift my confidence in my own sufficiency, in my own ability, and I move it to Christ and his word. I move it to the total confidence that his authority is more than sufficient to meet my needs. Amen? Isn't that what faith is? Don't you hate that? You know why? Because you love being sufficient, and I love being sufficient. I like a little bit of extra power on top, but I've got a lot of power. I don't like confessing that I'm needy and weak and vulnerable and insufficient to the task. But that's the heartbeat of faith, isn't it? It's coming to the point where I go, God, I have nothing in this situation. God, unless you act, unless you speak, unless you do something, I've got no hope. But number three, and perhaps the most important up to this point, is that faith doesn't rest on the visible presence of Jesus. What does faith rest on? The confidence and the authority of his word. I'm going to say it again. Your faith doesn't rest on the visible presence of Jesus. It rests upon the confidence and authority in his word. Why is it you don't open the Bible? Because you walk by sight. Why is it I don't open the Bible when I face crises that are beyond my ability? Because I walk by sight. And I have a high value in my own personal sufficiency, wisdom, and knowledge. 
I don't like being vulnerable and insufficient to the task. I don't like having to cry out, God, unless you speak, unless you show up, unless you do something, unless I put my hope in your sufficient, authoritative, inerrant word in this situation, I've got nothing. And God, I'm going to have to trust you with my eyes closed. Because I can't see what you're doing. I don't know where you're working. I don't know what you're doing. Ever been there? You know, you expect, verse 10, we'll get ready to close here, but verse 10, you expect verse 10 to be in thus, and lo, and Jesus spoke, and behold, the servant's bones were strengthened, and his ankles and his knees, and he rose from the bed triumphant, giving glory to God. And Luke, the doctor, he just leaves out the medical notes. I'm like, be a doctor here. Don't you want to know what happened? You don't even get it. Verse 10, and when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Story over. Why? Because the point of this text isn't the healing. Amen? The point of this text is not the healing. Let me talk to you just for a minute. Let me do some counseling. Let's do some group counseling. The struggle in your life right now, the thing, the, the, the servant that's close to death, that issue in your life right now isn't so much about that issue getting healed. Do you know that? I hate to say that because that applies to me too and now I have to live that. But that issue is really about what is happening with your faith. Where is your faith? Where are you putting it? What is the foundation of your life? Are you consistently repenting of the tendency you have and the tendency I have, that we all have, to put our faith and trust in bringing our good works to Jesus and getting our prayers answered? Are you repenting of the tendency you have to put more trust in what you see in your own ability and your past recent history and the successes you've had in your life? Are you repenting of that tendency and turning and trusting in the foundation of Christ and the authority of his word? Because that's where your faith grows. When Peter talks about faith, he says, our faith is more precious than gold, though it perishes, being refined by the fire. He says, you may experience various kinds of trials, but this is done to make your faith real, the tested genuineness of your faith real. So what's happening? In, what is the sanctification moment that's happening in your life right now? God is disturbing the places that you put your confidence in. And he's inviting you to consider the incredible authority and power of his word that he has in every sphere of life, in every single relationship, in every single season of life, in every single physical difficulty, in every single sin pattern you have. We are consistently bringing our trust back into the power of his authoritative word over our lives. See, that's why this text is so important because we all want to ask, hey, I want the house that lasts through the storms. And Jesus says, if you're going to do what I say, and do you know, did you notice there were no commands given in this passage? Not one time did anybody say do something. But the whole passage functions on the singular question, what do you put in your trust in? Your reputation, your background, your sufficiency, your strength? Or are you building your life on the foundation of the authority of Christ and his word? Father, we pause and just reflect in our own hearts. We pause and we repent of the ways in which we have a tendency 
to put our faith and our trust in everything else other than your word. We trust our sight, we trust our behavior, we trust our obedience. And Father, we confess as a church that we are insufficient. We are not worthy for you to answer our prayers, but we recklessly throw ourselves at your feet, confessing our inadequacy, confessing our inability. But at the very same time, confessing our certainty that your word has power and influence over every area of our life. So even today, for those situations in life that people are facing right now that feel like they're on the verge of death, Father, would you speak a word into their heart as they search the scriptures and seek to know what to do or what to say or how to trust you in this moment. Father, I pray that you would confirm that you are a loving and kind and gracious God who loves his kids and speaks to them through his word. Father, that even now verses would come to mind that truths about who you are would form our responses and our reflection and the ways in which we seek to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So, Father, we confess our need of you. We confess that we want to grow in our faith, and often it's hard. Father, we confess our need to know more of your word. And, Father, would you grow us in our faith? Would you grow us in our appreciation for your word? And would you shape us and conform us to the image of your son? It's in his name we pray. Amen.